Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 31 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for checking out the show today, my friend. Whether this is your first episode, your 31st episode, or you're somewhere in between, I really appreciate you hanging out with me in the Gaming Wildlands today. DD, our canine expedition leader, will be around to give you all the obligatory sniffing of the leg, so remain still, maintain eye contact, and no sudden movements. Ah, I'm just kidding. Just make sure you give our boy a good scratch behind the ears when he gets to you. If you happen to have any extra food scraps lying around, feel free to throw him some. Dee Dee loves cheese, loves any sort of meat, but absolutely loves peanut butter. Now, if you're feeling brave, feel free to smear some of that peanut butter on his nose and watch the hilarity ensue. Ah, it's so damn cute! <laughs> uh, on today's episode, we're checking out a game that is literally the definition of mixed feelings for me. It's a game that I always find myself going back to in some capacity, and it's a game that's part of a franchise that I just cannot let go of. Today, my friends, we're going to dive into Parasite Eve 2 on the Sony PlayStation. On our very second episode of the Retro Wildlands, we checked out the original Parasite Eve. Parasite Eve was and continues to be a standout video game experience. It's an action RPG with a very unique story and a very unique gameplay experience. Players take control of Aya Brea, an NYPD police officer who finds herself in an extraordinary situation. One evening, Aya attends an opera concert and encounters the being known as Eve. Eve takes control of the lead opera singer via her mitochondria, the microscopic organisms that give our cells energy to function in our bodies. Aya and Eve are bonded by their mitochondria, and as the game opens, it's very evident that this bond will set the stage for the story to come. While the story of Parasite Eve certainly sets itself apart from other games and experiences, it was the gameplay that really gave the game a unique identity. Battles took place in real time, allowing you to move Aya around the battlefield in order to avoid enemy attacks and set herself up offensively. As Aya's mitochondria evolves, she's given some pretty extraordinary abilities. Probably best described as magic, but Aya can do things like channel all of her energy into a single bullet, she can heal herself, hinder her opponents, and much more. Weapon and armor were made upgradable, allowing for a fairly robust customizable playing experience too. But what made Parasite Eve stand out, at least for me, was the amazing story. As the game progresses, and we as the player learn about Aya, Eve's origins, and how both of these ladies are connected, it's very easy to be swept up in it all. Aya and Eve's rivalry really drove a lot of the story, and I always felt like I wanted to push forward to see how it all unfolded. You can check out our second episode of the show if you want to hear me ramble about it all in much more detail, but I will say, Parasite Eve is nothing short of a must-play video game experience that I think any gamer should get their hands on. So, when Parasite Eve 2 was slated to be released, I knew I had to get my hands on the game. 
In the sequel, our leading lady Ayabrea returns to face a new mitochondrial threat to humanity. Now on the surface though, the sequel is very much in contrast to the first game. The battle system is completely different, Aya's mitochondrial abilities are learned and used in a brand new way, and the control scheme is nothing like the original. By all accounts, Parasite Eve 2 really is nothing like the first game. During the late 1990s, early 2000s, games like Resident Evil were all the rage. The original Parasite Eve was often compared to Resident Evil since it was oftentimes called a survival horror RPG. So it almost seemed natural that the new entry in the Parasite Eve universe would attempt to follow a little bit more closely to that lineage. And while some argue that Parasite Eve 2 delivered a fantastic game experience, others feel that this game fell incredibly short. What are my thoughts on this one? Well, strap in, my friends. I have a lot to say about this game, and I'm excited to finally be able to talk about it with you. I've been sitting on a video review of this game for quite a while that I put together, with a lot of my thoughts that I never did quite finish, so now it is finally time to let the world know what Nomad thinks about Parasite Eve 2. Now before we get to that, I usually like to take a little bit of time before the main episode to give everyone a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands. I just like to chat you up for a few minutes and let you know how the show itself is going, what projects I may be working on, what games I might be playing, read any comments I received from the Wildlands community this week, and maybe what's happening in my own life. If none of that sounds interesting to you and you're just here for the Parasite Eve 2 talk, no worries and no offense taken. You can just skip the rest of the intro by heading about 5-7 to seven minutes up the road. Otherwise, put your feet up, relax a little bit, and I'll tell you what's been happening around here these days. So, if everything went according to plan, you're listening to this episode on Thursday, February 23rd. If not, well, I fucked something up along the way. On Friday, the day after the Super Smash TV episode dropped, I caught a plane and headed out to San Antonio, Texas for my adult job, and I had every intention to create an episode on Parasite Eve 2 using a script from a video review I put together that I never finished, the one I mentioned earlier. The idea being that it should be the same quality episode, less work on my part, and I keep my weekly posting commitment. But life happens when you're busy making other plans, I'm told, so if this doesn't post on time, something happened along the way, and you have my deepest apologies. But either way, if you're hearing my words right now, whatever day this dropped, we did it, you guys. We're out there. Hooray! So since I'm writing and recording parts of this show a little bit out of order, I can't really tell you right now how my trip to San Antonio went overall, but I'm hoping I came back with some things to add to my gaming collection. About 30 minutes or so from where I'm staying, I found a retro video game store that looks pretty legit. So if I can get some downtime, I'm going to grab a car and head that way and see what treasures I can find and bring back. Ever since I started collecting for the PlayStation Portable, I've been pulled into the wonderful world of retro game collecting. I've acquired a bunch of older systems that I used to own when I was a kid, and got my hands on some things that I just completely missed out on. I've also reacquired a lot of the games that I used to play when I was a kid, so that's been pretty awesome. I'm really enjoying the hunt and finding things in places that I'd never expect, so hopefully my Texas trip is fruitful from that end of things. 
So as far as the podcast itself goes, just to give you guys a quick peek there, we're still trending slightly upwards when it comes to downloads after each episode. I won't bore you with too many of the details, but I have noticed that listener retention is showing 100% from the tail end of January until now. Which I assume means that those of you that have been listening are sticking around and listening to the new stuff that I churn out. So if I'm reading that statistic correctly, I will say that is really freaking awesome. I really don't know what else to say to that other than truly thank you. While I am no expert when it comes to podcast analytics, I know that retention is a really big thing. Once you find me, I hope you stick with me, and it looks like a lot of you are doing that. That said, I'm still trying to find ways to spread the word about the show and get more people listening. I haven't really been able to focus much on that, really, just because my adult job is kind of putting the screws to me, especially this last month, but I'm hoping to try and get back to throwing myself out there and networking some more. All that being said, if you are able to help me spread the word about the Retro Wildlands, I would really appreciate it. Let your friends know, your family, or whoever else will listen to you about a gaming podcast run by one guy who thinks he knows what he's talking about most of the time. Outside of that, if you truly like what I'm doing here, please consider leaving a good review on your podcasting platform if it allows you to. You can even leave us a good review on our Facebook page if nothing else. I certainly want to make sure I earn your good review, but if I do, submitting one should help circulate the podcast and help it pop up on searches and feeds. Any help would be appreciated, and if you leave us a good review with comments, I'll even shout you out on the show and sing your praises to the entire expedition, if that is something that sounds enticing. And speaking of Facebook, a quick social media plug. You can find the Retro Wildlands on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search at Retro Wildlands and you should find us. Social media is the best way to keep track of what's going on with the show, and it's the best way to interact with me directly. When I post things, I love when you all comment on them, and I have some quick back and forths with some of you. I try to make it a point to interact with all comments, especially by messaging you back, so join us over on social and check us out. On YouTube specifically, I am slowly uploading videos that are just the older podcast episodes until I get them all posted and I'm caught up to current. Eventually, I'd like to do more on video. It's just been very hard making time for it all. But please feel free to subscribe over there if you want to be the first to know when I put something up or what's happening over there too. Alright, I think that is all the rambling I want to do this week. I am excited to get into the reason that we're all here today, so no more delays. It's time to talk about Parasite Eve 2 for the Sony PlayStation. Squidge from the Waffling Taylors podcast wrote into the show on our Twitter and said, Always love the enemy sound effects in this game. My favorite was the sound of, ooh, in the labs. Absolute banger of a game. Never managed to complete it, though. You're absolutely right, Squidge. The sound effects in this game are just top-notch, specifically when you're talking about the enemies. You're gonna have to let me know, though, is the ooh sound that you're talking about one of those electric manatee thingamajiggies in the shelter area? Here's what they sound like. (laughs) Those things are awesome. Enemies are really unique, and you can figure out what enemies you're fighting just by hearing the noises they make. They are that distinct. 
I especially love the weapon sounds in this game, too. Firing most weapons feels unique and weighty, but I especially loved some of the sounds that you make when you reload your weapons. Just sounds crisp, and I love it. Squidge, I hope you do get a chance to go back to PE2 and finish it one day. I'd be curious what your final thoughts are. And thanks again, my friend, for writing into the show. I really appreciate it. Jay from the Waffling Taylors podcast also wrote into the show on Twitter and said, For the longest time, PE2 was the only PE for us. The first one was banned here in the UK for its violent intro. PE2 has always been a favorite action RPG for me. It has everything, wacky storyline, fantastic weapons, new game plus, and a great protagonist. Now that's interesting, Jay. I knew the opening to the original Parasite Eve was pretty violent for what it was, but I never knew that there would be some countries out there that would just ban it outright. But I agree with all the reasons that you love PE2. The storyline is pretty out there, the weapons are very unique, the New Game Plus mode is the reason I kept playing this game over and over again, and Ayabrea will forever be one of the most badass video game characters of all time. End of discussion. I'm glad you've been able to play and appreciate this game, even if the first one was off limits. Thank you for writing into the show as well, it's always good to hear from both you and Squidge. For those of you listening, I encourage you, check out the Waffling Taylors podcast if you enjoy video games. They were nice enough to let me on their show at the beginning of the year where I got to talk Resident Evil and a few other games with them, so head on over to your favorite podcasting app and check them out. Released in North America in the year 2000 on September 12th, Parasite Eve 2 continues the story of Aya Brea three years after the conclusion of the first game. Aya has left New York and has settled down in Los Angeles where she's joined up with the FBI where she works as a member of their MIST unit, Mitochondrial Investigation and Suppression Team. Even though the incident in New York is long over, creatures born from mutated mitochondria still appear from time to time, presumably remnants of the New York incident. Aya uses her abilities to hunt down and terminate these creatures before any harm can befall any other human being. One faithful day, Aya gets a call that sends her to the Acropolis Tower in Los Angeles, where a group of creatures have seemingly invaded the tower and started wreaking havoc. As Aya investigates the tower and tracks down the origin of the threat, she starts to learn that the events of the tower are connected on a scale much larger than she ever thought possible. The information she finds and the clues she gathers points her towards a conspiracy that has some very far-reaching impacts, and Aya herself will have to come face-to-face with her past. Can Aya uncover the truth behind the most recent creature outbreak and understand how she herself fits into it all? That, my friends, is where we come in. So let's suit up, Wildlanders. Grab your M93F handguns, stock up on some recovery aids, and don't forget to level up your mitochondrial powers. We're going to need every tool at our disposal to help see this through to the end and discover the truth even if the truth threatens to end Iabrea once and for all.
When I was younger, I probably completed the original Parasite Eve at least a half a dozen times. I could not get enough of the experience. When I learned there was going to be a second game in the series releasing in September of 2000, I was immediately overjoyed and started saving my pennies yet again. I was eager for a new adventure in the world of Aya Brea, and I wanted to learn more about her and her mitochondrial powers. When I finally popped this disc into my PlayStation, I began a journey of conflicting feelings. I couldn't deny that I loved this game and found myself playing through it multiple times. I love being able to play as Aya Brea again, and even today, she continues to be one of my favorite video game characters of all time. I loved a lot of the gameplay, I thought the story was pretty alright, and I really appreciated that the New Game Plus feature attached to the end of this game gave me a ton of reasons to keep coming back. But now that I've replayed this game again as an adult, with many more gaming experiences under my belt, I started to see some cracks in the overall foundation. Some spots where the paint wasn't quite even. Some streaks on the glass, if you will. Still, this game did plenty to stand far apart from the original game to showcase a unique experience while keeping the same charm, mystery, and enjoyable combat as the original. But no matter how I look at this game, it seems like there was always something that was just holding it back. I'm really anxious to get into this game as a whole and peel back the layers on this one. While I absolutely think Parasite Eve 2 is a great game and I can't deny how much fun I have with it, I'm seeing more shortfalls than I remember seeing when I was a kid. Does that kill PE2 altogether for me? Or will it continue to endure as one of my favorite games? Let's take a journey into the game that is quite literally the definition of mixed feelings for me. The game that I go back to for all the wrong reasons, and the game franchise that I just cannot let go of. Now before we do all that, let me touch on spoilers really quick. I'm not going to discuss major plot points or get any big chunks of the story into the discussion today. I am, however, going to be covering the very first area of the game, the Acropolis Tower, in a little bit of detail as I use it as a backdrop to talk about some of the gameplay features and other things. I'll try to gloss over some of the more story-prominent parts, but if you've never played this game before and want to go into the game completely blind, this is your warning. While the game has been out for over 20 years at this point, I just wanted to be a little transparent and let you know that you're going to need to make your own decision here if you want to keep listening. Again, the things I touch on, they are very minor. And any events happening after the game's opening mission will be touched on very vaguely and there will not be any spoilers to be had story-wise. Are we understood? Alright, let's get into this thing. So, what is this game? Parasite Eve 2 is the sequel to Parasite Eve on the original PlayStation, and it's a third-person action role-playing game. Players will once again take control of Aya Brea, the badass protagonist from the first game. It's been three years since the events of the first game. Our leading lady, Aya Brea, has moved on from her position as an NYPD police officer and has taken a position with the FBI in Los Angeles, working as a member of their secret division known as MIST. That stands for Mitochondrial Investigation and Suppression Team. 
She still is independent and headstrong as ever, and while you would think the events of the first game would have Aya running around as a superpower-wielding, fire-throwing creature hunter, Aya has seemingly suppressed much of her mitochondrial powers. She prefers to work alone, and it's referenced in-game that other agents are not that comfortable being around her due to her being so different. Since the events of the first game, Aya is much more confident in her abilities and has an attitude to match, though she can still be timid at times when something throws her off her game. What made the first game such a success in my eyes was the small supporting cast of characters. In the original game, Aya was somewhat green and untested, but she had a courage and a confidence that set her apart from her peers. While Aya went through the first game wondering if she'd have the strength to see the crazy events that happened through, it was also her supporting cast that really helped pick her up and helped Aya find her strength. Her partner Daniel was a firm father figure and always supported Aya when she doubted herself. Japanese scientist Kunohiko Maeda was able to offer Aya some explanation to the events of the first game, which helped her find her place in the grand scheme of things. These three characters were paired up so perfectly and offered Aya a support system that made sense when it came to her development. They weren't just background characters used to progress the plot. They had purpose. In Parasite Eve 2, Aya has a much larger supporting cast of characters that she'll interact with as she goes. Most of these will be fellow members of Myst, but Aya will also meet a couple more as she makes her way through the game's bigger area, the town of Dryfield. Let's take a moment to introduce the newbies, shall we? For starters, we have Pierce. He's the nerd, tech-savvy archetype whom Aya will interact with most during the story. He's extremely gifted with technology and finds multiple ways to help Aya during the course of the game. You'll see Pierce the most during the game, especially if you partake in certain events that allow him to tag along with you far deeper into the story. He has a funny enough personality, but outside of being the team's techie, you can tell pretty quick that he has a pretty big crush on Aya, and some of his decisions are made in an effort to impress her. It's cute, I suppose, but all of this sort of stuff is kind of forced into the dialogue. Aya never really acknowledges the fact that Pierce likes her in any way, so it's all kind of wasted on the player. Next up, we have Rupert. The calm and collected type, Rupert lost his daughter in the events of the first game. His focus now is hunting down the remainder of these creatures, and uses his expertise in firearms to great effect. To me, Rupert can be a lot like Barrett from Final Fantasy VII, but Rupert doesn't really lose his temper nearly as much as Barrett does. Rupert doesn't really get nearly as much screen time as I would have liked to see since he finds himself getting injured pretty early in the story. I like the idea that he lost his daughter in the first game, so I was curious to see if that would be explored or expanded on at all. But sadly, it really isn't, which is a complete shame. Still, Rupert's attitude and commitment to the mission are cool to see when he is on screen. He has no problem digging his feet in and firing back at Aya if her attitude gets a little bit out of hand, and I kind of like that about him. While I love my girl Aya, sometimes others just need to reel her back in, and Rupert is great for that. Jody runs the weapon department at Mist HQ. 
Now, she comes off to me as kind of a little ditzy and aloof with how she speaks sometimes, but she is very knowledgeable when it comes to firearms and provides Aya some much-needed support in that area. In the beginning of the game, she runs the Mist Weapons Depot where Aya can purchase new weapons and items. I kind of like Jody, and you can tell she considers Aya a close friend, but she's not really afforded much screen time to develop either. As we get to the later parts of the story, Aya will meet Douglas and his dog Flint. Douglas is a war veteran who lives a quiet life with Flint in the town of Dryfield. He comes off intimidating and doesn't really trust others much these days, but he has a warm heart and is eager to help those that do earn his favor. For those that have played the first Parasite Eve, Douglas is a lot like Daniel, Aya's former partner. I really enjoyed watching Aya and Douglas interact. At first, Douglas doesn't really trust Aya all that much, but he does warm up to her, and the two of them eventually start working together. It's very, very subtle, but I almost saw a father-daughter dynamic form between the two of them. And Flint, Douglas's dog, is just a pretty good boy all the way around. Finally, Aya will eventually meet up with Kyle Madigan, a private investigator that comes equipped with a certain mystery, a little bit of charm, and a sense of humor that makes him immediately likable, or unlikable depending on your viewpoint, but he is someone that you can't help but be suspicious of at the same time. Kyle will sometimes accompany Aya during gameplay, which is a nice addition to the overall experience, but it didn't really happen all that often to have any sort of weight to it. Kyle plays a pretty big role in the story, and much of his interactions are shrouded in mystery. Aya and Kyle are quick to work together, and Kyle immediately takes a liking to Aya, but Aya is a bit hard to trust him, which leads to some pretty interesting dialogue. While I love that Aya tends to put up a tough front most of the time, Kyle can crack that rough exterior, and it's almost cute watching her stumble over her words sometimes. So those are more or less the major players in Parasite Eve 2. I did leave out a couple characters, and one in particular some may have noticed, but I figured including that character might be a bit of a spoiler on its own. But now that we have an idea of who's who, I say we pop the game in and use it as a way to talk through the game's presentation and get into some of the gameplay. So as the game begins, Aya is honing her skills in the mist shooting range. As she shoots targets with pictures of monsters on them, Aya gives us a brief narration to set up the game's story up to this point. Nearly three years have passed since the tragic loss of life during the incident in Manhattan. Since then, I've quit the force and become an NMC hunter based in LA. I caught the creatures as they headed west from New York. We never saw any of the mutant mitochondria that created Eve again. The creature's numbers were dwindling. The end of my struggle was in sight. Until one chilly, late summer evening. As the narration trails off, Aya accidentally shoots a target that has a civilian woman on it. As soon as she does though, the shooting range turns red and the session ends. Whoops, Aya certainly isn't in the zone today. And that's what she tells Pierce, who's operating the shooting range from behind her. Aya tries to shake it off, and the player is left with a choice. Continue training on the range, or call it a day. If you've never played the game before, 
I highly recommend that you give the shooting range a try. It's more or less an optional tutorial that gives you a rundown of the game's controls, specifically when it comes to combat. So I think at this point, this is a good time to cover some of the gameplay features in Parasite Eve 2. The differences between how the first game in the series plays and the second are very vast. Aya controls completely different, combat mechanics are overhauled, and the systems used to level up Aya are all brand new. There's a lot to cover, but let's stick with the basics for now. Then we'll really get into the details when we're on site of Aya's first mission at the top of the Acropolis Tower. So right out of the gate, the biggest thing we need to know about Aya is how she moves. Like I mentioned before, the Resident Evil series was all the rage around this time, and the developers of Parasite Eve 2 certainly seemed like they wanted to capitalize on that craze. This game controls very much like an old-school Resident Evil game. So, you know what that means. We have tank controls. Woo! Because I am such a lover of this control scheme, a decent amount of games that I've covered on the podcast have them, so I'll keep the explanation quick, since longtime listeners have probably heard this speech a dozen times already. Now, normally, when you control a character in third person, pressing a direction on the directional pad on your controller makes your character move in that direction relative to the view of the camera. The tank control style has your character move relative to the direction the character is facing. Pressing up on the directional pad moves the character forward. Down on the directional pad has them move back. Pressing left and right only makes your character pivot their bodies in that direction. It is pretty much as clunky as it sounds, but I love this control scheme. For games with fixed camera angles, this control scheme really does make sense. Shinji Mikami, the director of the first Resident Evil game, felt that the combination of fixed camera angles and tank controls would help the game become a little bit more scarier, fill it with a little bit more tension. Movement is as limiting as your view of the playfield, which can create some tension when you can't see your enemies and your character isn't the most nimble. And while I personally buy into that idea, and I am a huge advocate for tank controls, they are admittedly a little out of place in this particular game. But we'll get into how the game controls and how that impacts gameplay a little later. So with regards to the shooting range, Aya will have a choice of five difficulty levels. Definitely start with level one, as it will teach Aya the basics on shooting. As you progress in difficulty, you'll learn a little bit more about how Aya moves and how she engages enemies in combat. I can't speak to any other third-person shooters on the PlayStation, but games like Resident Evil would have you hold one of the shoulder buttons on the controller to raise your weapon, and you'd have to press a button on the control pad itself to fire that weapon. You'd need to line up the enemy using the directional button before you decided to shoot. It can be kind of hard, especially if the fixed camera angle hides an enemy off-screen. In order to try to work around this limitation, Parasite Eve 2 employs a lock-on system during battles. This is a fantastic feature, especially since the pre-rendered static backgrounds can hide those enemies off-screen that you can't see, like I said. More than that, some enemies move rather quickly, and the lock-on feature helps you keep tabs on them. However, the lock-on system has one huge drawback. 
Because Aya is locked on to that enemy, she'll automatically start to swivel her body in the direction of that enemy like she's on a rotating platform the moment you stop moving her. If you're moving Aya and you let off your directional pad for just a moment, Aya will start to pivot her body towards the enemy. This doesn't always help if you're trying to get away from a threat and not run towards it. Plus, it just helps make the experience feel even more clunky. Once I understood this though and began to work with this shortfall, I was able to make this lock-on feature work for me instead of against me. A great example is the chaser enemies in Dryfield. These enemies are the big horse enemies for those that have seen them before. When one would try to run towards and ram Aya, I would dodge the attack and simply let my finger off the controller for a moment. The speed in which Aya automatically pivots versus me trying to manually make adjustments is usually pretty smooth on its own, allowing me to follow up with an attack rather quickly. Another big downside to the lock-on feature is selecting other targets or disengaging the lock-on entirely. While the game explains how to do this in the target practice sessions in the beginning of the game, I rarely had success switching over to the enemy that I wanted to target after a lock-on was initiated on an enemy that I did not want to target. So I would be stuck watching Aya want to rotate her body towards an enemy who might be off-screen that I don't want to engage right now, and I would have to get creative with how I engage a closer threat that I couldn't quite lock onto effectively. Now the last battle feature I want to touch on before we head out on our first mission is the return of Aya's mitochondrial powers. So in case you haven't played the first game, the mitochondria in Aya's body begin to mutate and evolve. As they evolve, they grant Aya some pretty remarkable powers. Using her cell's energy, she's basically able to cast magic spells. Aya can throw fire to damage her enemies, she can heal her wounds, she can cast negative statuses on her enemies, or even reduce incoming damage to herself. The game calls these abilities Parasite Energy. Just like in most role-playing games, magic spells cost MP, or magic points, to cast. This is very much true for this game. As you gain access to more Parasite Energy, the more versatile you're going to become in combat. Now actually using these spells, that can be the tricky part. Aiming some of Aya's parasite energy can be a bit of a chore, even with the lock-on feature. Pyrokinesis, Aya's bread and butter fire spell, fires straight out in front of her, which is fine. Combustion, on the other hand, has more of a cone-shaped damage area. Obviously, the best way to use this ability is to capture as many enemies in the damage cone as possible before execution. Though what tends to happen is Aya will lock onto an enemy that isn't quite in the middle of where you want the spell to land, so you try to move your lock onto another enemy and you don't quite land on the one that you intended. I found myself pivoting Aya in the general direction I wanted and then quickly hit the button that opens up my spell menu before she starts pivoting back. It's really hard to describe, but if you don't quite get everything in the area that I wanted, I would just tap the button to close the menu, I would tap it again to open it, and just kind of slowly move her in the direction that I needed her to. 
While it's very cumbersome to do this if it doesn't work right off the rip, this is all just another example of where I had to make the system work for me in spite of itself. All of that aside though, Aya's parasite abilities are very fun to use and they often hit hard when they land. Learning what abilities are best used against certain enemies and how you can take advantage of a situation with a well-timed spell never got old. So now that we've discussed the controls and how Aya can combat the nasty creatures out there using her firearms and parasite energy, it's time we set off on our first mission. As Aya exits the shooting range, she stops to talk to Pierce who tells Aya she's wanted on site at the Acropolis Tower as there has been a confirmed sighting of NMCs, Neo-Mitochondrian Creatures. A SWAT team has already been dispatched and Aya is being tasked with providing support. Aya's primary role in Mist is to hunt down these creatures wherever they are, so she's very eager to take the fight to them. At this point, we take control of Aya and we move her through Mist HQ on the way to the parking garage where her ride awaits. On the way, we can enter the weapon depot and purchase weapons and ammo from Jody. We'll touch on this a little bit later, but as you dispatch monsters in this game, you'll be awarded with BP or Bounty Points. Aya's primary role in Mist is that of an NMC hunter, so BP is a great incentive to go out and lay waste to every monster that you find. Bounty points can then be used to purchase new weapons, ammunition, armor, and other items. It's a great little system that rewards you for, well, doing your job. From what I remember, there really isn't anything that you can buy right off the bat since the game is only just beginning, but you can earn some bonus BP if you perform exceptionally well in each level of the shooting range, so keep that in mind. Once we're ready to head out, we talk to Pierce and we let him know. Aya hops into her car, and we take off down the street towards our objective. At 8.56pm, Aya arrives at the Acropolis Tower. Just as Aya arrives on scene, a police helicopter crashes to the streets below. The LAPD is thrown into disarray as flames shoot upwards towards the night sky. Aya pulls up and gets out of her car, surveying the scene. She shows little emotion on her face. Scenes like this are unfortunately nothing new to her. The scene itself fades to black and then we are given control of Aya. This opening scene is one of my favorites in all of the video games that I've played up to this point. The visual presentation does not get much better than what we see here in the opening. While the pre-rendered backgrounds and environments in general look pretty good, it's this opening that just steals the show. The CGI cutscenes that help the original Parasite Eve stand out make a return here and they look better than ever. As you take control of Aya and move towards the tower, the camera will move dynamically around her, showing off the destruction in the area. If you listen closely in this scene, you can even hear a remixed version of one of the game's original music tracks, which just further enhance this scene. It is beautiful and chilling at the same time, and it never fails to get me excited for what lay ahead. Once we move past all the destruction and make our way to the entrance to the tower itself, Aya moves past and takes an elevator to the rooftop area, completely unaware of what awaits her. 
As the elevator comes to a stop and the doors open, Aya springs out with her handgun at the ready. The music here is pretty tense, and when you're given control of Aya again, I always feel a tinge of excitement ramping up. I just get so anxious to know what's going to be behind the next corner, past the next door. We move Aya down the hall and through a set of doors. Once through, we quickly discover what happened to that SWAT team that came in before us. The bloody, mangled corpses of multiple SWAT officers riddle the floor. There's no movement, only silence. The tension in the air is palpable. As we move through the carnage towards the back of the room, the payphone on the wall rings. But if you look closely enough, there's a figure in the shadows near it. Just as our eyes start to adjust, the figure darts away. Looks like we're not alone. We move over to the phone and we answer it. Our supervising agent, Baldwin, is on the other end. We tell him what's happening and what the fate of the SWAT team is, and then we're instructed to proceed forward with extreme caution. In the first Parasite Eve, you can use phones to save your game, and the same is true with Parasite Eve 2. So while we have the opportunity, we save our game before we move on. Just to the right of the telephone, we spot another door. We grab the handle and open it, and we make our way to the other side. As we move forward through the hallway, everything seems quiet enough until we hear someone call out towards us. Freeze. We're being held up by somebody, and we quickly determine that it's a member of the SWAT team. While he may have survived the assault in the other room, it's very clear that he's injured. He tells Aya there's a civilian in the cafeteria who didn't make the evacuation chopper out. He hands Aya a key to the cafeteria, and it's pretty clear what our next destination is. We need to find the cafeteria and save the civilian. Taking the key, we leave the SWAT officer behind and head back the way we came. Stepping over the bloody mess, we make our way to the right of the screen where we step down to a landing. As we move, something catches Aya's attention. There's something on the bench over there. When we move over and examine it, we discover that it's a box of 9mm Parabellum rounds. Perfect! These will fit nicely into our current handgun. The nicer thing is that this ammo box apparently has an unlimited supply of bullets, so we can restock here indefinitely. We'll need to make a mental note of this location. Boxes of ammunition like this will be scattered throughout the game world and even have other types of ammunition in them, so we'll need to be on the lookout. More than anything, we really need to make sure that we do not run out of ammo. After we stock up, we keep moving into the next area. After descending another set of stairs, we find ourselves on the path to the cafeteria. But as soon as we round the corner, we are met with a sinister sight. A humanoid NMC has pounced on top of another SWAT team member, and it's ripping him to shreds! We have to help him. When we get control of Aya back, we press the run button on the controller and get over to the scene as quickly as our legs can carry us. To engage the creature in battle, we press the square button to aim our weapon, and the game transitions into battle mode. The screen flashes white for a moment, 
and the battle is on. When we draw our weapon, the first thing that we'll see is a targeting reticle that has appeared around the creature. Aya is now locked onto the monster, and her body will always swivel to face the creature when we aren't moving her. It doesn't take long for the monster to focus on Aya instead of the SWAT officer. It starts to move towards us. Since the battle is happening in real time, we move Aya a safe distance away. Once we're done moving her and we let off the directional pad, she spins towards the enemy. Pressing the shoulder button, we fire our handgun at the monster. The primary fire mode for our M93R is a three-round burst fire, and all three shots hit our foe. The damage done to the creature pops up as a number next to it. Three shots to the chest is pretty decent, but it's going to take more than that to win this fight. As the creature gets closer, we turn Aya around and have her move away again. Resetting our position, we fire again. We continue to move and evade as the creature moves towards us. Soon the creature goes down and it does not get back up. It melts into a pile of goo and we automatically reload our weapon. After this, we are shown our on-screen reward. For taking out the creature, we're awarded with experience points and bounty points. Now we've already covered bounty points, but what about experience points? What do those do in Parasite Eve 2? Let's take a second and I'll explain it to you. Yeah, I know the SWAT guy over there is bleeding out, but he'll be fine. This is just going to take a minute. So unlike the previous Parasite Eve and most other RPGs, there is no leveling system here for Aya herself. You can use experience points to unlock and level up Aya's repressed mitochondrial parasite energy. You have the ability to unlock and upgrade offensive spells as well as defensives, so you can make it a point to either gather as many offensive spells as you can, or you can prioritize survival with upgrading defensive and healing spells, or you can do a combination of both. This allows you to sort of customize Aya and her development as you go, and you aren't limited to a preset path. Personally, I always made it a point to upgrade my main offensive fire spells first, then I prioritized healing and defensive buffs, but that's just because I personally favored damage dealing more than I did anything else. To me, I don't have to heal myself if everything that's trying to kill me is dead. And more than that, there is nothing quite as satisfying as walking into an area full of monsters and setting everything on literal fire. But like I said, the nice thing about this system is that you can mix and match it however you want. If you want to rely more on firearms and focus more on weapons-based combat, you can do that. There are defensive abilities that you can focus on that will increase your raw attack and reduce incoming damage. How you use Aya and her abilities is completely up to you. Speaking of firearms, let's touch on those really fast. One of the things that I always enjoyed when playing the first game was the firearms-based combat. While it's completely different in Parasite Eve 2, it's still pretty enjoyable for the most part. Aside from using Aya's mitochondrial abilities, she'll mainly rely on a firearm in combat as her primary means to dish out the hurt. While there are considerably less customization options in this game compared to the first, Parasite Eve 2 sports an impressive arsenal of weapons. You'll start the game out with a handgun, but much more will be made available to you to purchase with your accumulated bounty points. 
Weapons include handguns, shotguns, submachine guns, grenade launchers, light machine guns, and a highly customizable assault rifle. Each weapon type is useful in their own way, and it's up to you to figure out how best to use them. Some weapon types can also come with multiple types of ammunition, further expanding on their usefulness. Personally, I favored the M4A1 assault rifle. It always felt like it was packing a punch, and I loved all the attachments that you could purchase for it. A bayonet attachment that you would stick at the barrel of the gun allowed me to dish out decent damage physically while saving ammo, and the underbarrel grenade launcher, as another example, was perfect for dealing massive damage at longer ranges. There's also a laser beam attachment for this gun because why not? Now, speaking of attachments, some weapons have some built in. Take my second favorite weapon, the MP5A5 submachine gun. It comes equipped with an underrail flashlight attachment, which can stun some enemies with its intense light. It is almost essential for some enemies, like these creepy crawly creatures that can cloak themselves. Overall, I can safely say that every weapon that I used in this game felt really, really good, and all of them have their uses. Weapons you come across have a unique design and feel to them, and depending on what weapon that you have equipped, Aya will actually visually behave differently while holding it, moving with it, firing it, and reloading it. For instance, if she's holding a handgun, she'll move unabated with the gun in one hand. The M4A1 assault rifle is heavier, so having one equipped will show Aya moving with it in such a way that it shows that it's considerably heavier. Equip attachments to the assault rifle, and even her reload animations will show her struggling with the weight of the weapon. I like these little touches, and they really added a uniqueness to your chosen loadout. Though I did find it a little hard to believe that Aya needs to hunch over a little bit when she's holding an 8-pound assault rifle with no attachments, but I know it's picky, but I can't help it. Okay, I think that covers it when it comes to weapons. Next thing I want to talk about is... Oh, fuck, forgot about that SWAT guy. Shit, we should probably see if he's okay, right? Okay. So as Aya runs over to the wounded SWAT officer, she cries out to him and tells him to hang in there, and definitely does not mention that we just spent the last 3-4 minutes doing a tutorial talk-through. As we look down on the SWAT officer, it's pretty evident that he is in bad shape. There's just so much blood everywhere. He's missing his left eye, and I'm pretty sure he's missing his left arm, too. Through labored gasps, the SWAT officer tells us to be careful, the monsters are not what they seem. Right as Aya is about to ask him to elaborate, the SWAT officer succumbs to their wounds. <laughs> and he succumbs rather abruptly by the sounds of it. If it wasn't evident from the one guy saying freeze, and this knucklehead dying like he's on a Saturday morning cartoon, this game does feature the occasional voiceover, but I kinda wish it really hadn't. But anyway, we still have that civvy in the cafeteria to help, so we leave this poor bastard behind and we move on. The next door we come across is the cafeteria itself. Using the key, we enter. Once inside, we spot a woman sitting at a nearby table. Aya moves to the woman and puts a hand on her shoulder. She tells the woman that she's safe and that we're going to get her out of here. Without any warning, the woman starts to waver and she falls to the floor. 
it becomes very evident that the SWAT officer we just spoke to was right. Things are not at all what they seem. In front of Aya's eyes, the woman transforms into a neo-mitochondrian creature in one of the most detailed and grotesque CGI cutscenes in the entire game. Her skin rips, her bones crack, and her face transforms. When the process is complete, we are staring face to face with a hairless monster, skin taut across its face, with its eyes deep within its sockets. Rearing back, it lets out an inhuman roar. When we get control of Aya again, we're immediately thrust back into battle mode. This creature is not going to go down easy, and there is not much room to move around in the space that we're in, so we're going to have to deal as much damage as we possibly can as quickly as we can. Right away we put a couple shots into the creature. Well, shit, that doesn't seem like it's doing much. If only we had more firepower. Oh, right! We do have more firepower in the form of Aya's parasite energy. Pressing the triangle button will open up a menu at the lower right-hand side of the screen, and any unlocked parasite energy is going to be displayed there. Right now, the only ability that we can use is pyrokinesis, but it will get the job done. When you select any parasite energy, a green wireframe will expand out of Aya's character model, which shows you where the effect will travel when it's activated. For this spell, it fires right out in front of Aya. Since we're locked onto the creature and Aya's body is already facing it, the spell is pretty much lined up at this point. We activate the spell and after a short charging animation, Aya throws a fireball at the creature causing some pretty decent damage. Nice. We can continue to cast this spell without too much of a cooldown in between, just so long as we have the MP to spend. And I recommend unloading on this beast with everything that we have. Since there isn't much room to move, we do not want to get ourselves cornered. After a short but brutal battle, the creature goes down for the count. After the battle ends, we take a closer look at the creature and discover a metal implant lodged into it. It sort of makes you wonder if someone could be controlling these creatures. As Aya turns to leave, Rupert barges into the cafeteria with his weapon raised and tells us to get down. In a scene that always came off to me like it was ripped right from the Resident Evil 2 intro, Rupert shoots past Aya and takes out the monster just as it's getting back to its feet. After a couple more point-blank shots, the creature finally dissolves into a puddle of goo. After exchanging information to Rupert about this new threat, and how it was seemingly disguised as a human before transforming, the area is overrun by more creatures. Rupert stays behind, but Aya retreats to phone in some reinforcements. The situation is a little bit more intense than I think we originally thought. Once we exit the cafeteria, we're given control of Aya once again. We need to head back to the area we first started in and use that phone to call in some reinforcements. As we make our way past the SWAT officer that was tore apart earlier, sorry, two more NMCs jump down to attack us from the rooftop above. The game forces us into battle in this scenario and we take the fight to the enemy. Throughout the game, battle can be forced on us like this, but in most cases, enemies will actually be seen roaming in the game world in real time. We could avoid combat if we really wanted to, but then we would miss out on gathering up experience and bounty points that way. 
Plus, I argue that there's just something satisfying about hunting these creatures down. The interesting thing about the monsters in this game is that the battles that take place aren't really random, and when you defeat enemies, they'll be gone from that area and they won't come back. This allows you to slowly conquer an area and render it monster-free. However, as the game progresses, monsters could populate previously visited areas again. How do you keep track of this? Easy, we just need to use the game's map feature. Pressing the select button outside of combat will open up a GPS map. Enemies will more than likely be in new locations that you haven't visited yet, but if there's a location that you can visit that is visible on the map that has enemies in it, that room will be highlighted red. This means you can try to avoid these areas if you aren't looking for a fight, or do what Aya does best as a mist hunter and seek out enemies with the intent on delivering some swift justice. I think the biggest draw for me personally was hunting down all of the creatures to maximize my experience and bounty point gain. Every time something story related happened, even if it was something small, I found myself checking the map to see if places I've already been at might be showing monsters again that needed slaying. The drawback to this is you're going to find yourself constantly backtracking to areas that you've already been to just to fight more monsters. It can get very repetitive for some people. Now moving on, eventually as we move through the tower area slaying monsters along the way, we come across a church, the one location in the entire tower that just seemed very out of place for me, but whatever. When we enter it, we spot Rupert and he is in some serious trouble. We see him being attacked by a large man in a green suit. We can't see his face since he's hidden behind a mask. But without a word, the man drops Rupert and escapes by jumping over Aya and out a stained glass window. Aya considers following Rupert's attacker, but thinks better of it and goes to his aid instead. Rupert is clearly injured, but tells Aya to chase the man down and get some answers. In an optional scene that can be missed if Aya doesn't go to the right side of the room off the church at the right time, Aya will overhear someone talking about removing all evidence of the outbreak and how someone called Number 9 will create a diversion. Aya discovers a bomb and the gravity of the situation really sets in. What the fuck is going on around here? Aya finally finds the Hulking Man on the roof, and after a short battle, the explosives that Aya has been finding are all triggered. Rupert and Aya escape by helicopter in the nick of time, however, our heroes have more questions than they do answers. Back at Mist HQ, Aya is tasked with heading to the Mojave Desert, specifically the small town of Dryfield, to investigate some possible creature activity. Clearly annoyed by this, Aya isn't too happy about the new assignment until Pierce discovers that sand was found in the metal implant that Aya found attached to that large creature she dispatched. And the sand was linked to sand found only in the Mojave Desert. Seeing that her new case is most likely connected with the tower incident, Aya eagerly packs her bags and hits the road. This is where the game proper truly begins. It's up to Aya to figure out the connection between these events and put a stop to any threats to human life. However, the deeper that Aya descends into this mystery, the more we learn that this is not just a simple outbreak. 
Larger forces are at play behind the scenes, and we learn just how far some people will go to create their vision of the ideal future for all of mankind. So that's the story set up in the first area of the game in a nutshell. There's certainly a lot going on, and the story, at least at first, is pretty engaging. I remember being very curious as to how the story was going to unfold here. Now, setting the story aside just for a little bit, I did want to speak a little bit more to the game's presentation before we continue on. If you've played the first Parasite Eve, you'll notice the similarities as well as the changes when it comes to the overall presentation. Pre-rendered backgrounds return here, and they are gorgeous. The areas that you'll be making your way through are often littered with little details, and are further enhanced when the player inspects them with the X button. When Aya would enter a new area, I would spend more time than I probably should have taking in that area and inspecting everything that I could. Not only does Aya give the player information on what she's looking at, she may even throw in her personal thoughts about what she's looking at or thinking about at that particular point in time. This helped immerse me in the experience and added a layer to the storytelling in some spots. You might even find an item or two hidden in the environment as well. I remember being legitimately creeped out when I was younger when I examined the window into the general store when I first got to Dryfield. Aya thought she saw someone staring out at her, but dismisses it as if she's seeing things the more you examine the window. It made me feel very uneasy as I started my adventure in that desert town. I remember being a little nervous when I eventually unlocked that store and got to venture inside. Would whoever I thought I saw be in there still? This right here is one of the high points of the game for me, how it can pull you into its world with just a few lines of text if you let it. The biggest drawback to this, though, is that there are some deeper story elements that you'll potentially miss out on if you don't examine everything in the environment. Without spoiling too much, later in the game you come across a huge creature who can actually speak. Eventually, you track it down and you kill it, and you claim a key card off the corpse. At that point, you can assume the creature used to be someone who worked in the shelter area that you're in, but that's about as far as it goes. It's up to you to come across a specific person's diary to understand how and why he became a creature, and even find the area that the creature was locked in until it eventually escaped. So while exploring your environment thoroughly can reward you with additional story elements further pulling you into the world, you have a chance to miss out on some of these awesome extras, which is just a complete shame. Taking that a step further, the game actually has multiple endings, and only when the player finds everything they need and performs actions in a specific order do they finish the experience with the best ending. Did you happen to find the teddy bear hidden in that one area that you're only in for a few minutes the whole game? No? Then too bad for you, because you are not getting the best ending. Okay, rant aside, back to the presentation. Character models are upgraded, which now feature subtle facial animations, and even what I have to assume is some subtle motion capture in some spots. The monsters you face, though, are a little bit of a mixed bag for me. Some creatures really look awesome and are genuinely creepy. It's very haunting to look at a creature that was once human and see hollow eye sockets staring back at you. 
However, I didn't really care for the design of some of the more powerful boss monsters, like the Burner with his flamethrower attachment. While the fight against the Burner itself is an interesting one, this elephant-sounding creature really just seems out of place in this game, even given some of the story's reasons for why some of the game's monsters exist in the first place. As the story progresses beyond the Acropolis Tower, you'll find yourself in areas such as the dry field abandoned desert town, underground mines and cellars, a secret underground facility, and even a location acting as a greenhouse of sorts that's flush with flora and fauna. At first, I rather enjoyed most of the areas that you would explore in the game. The town of Dryfield feels very lived in and rustic, the mines are genuinely dark and foreboding, and the underground shelter area gives off this very modern, government conspiracy kind of vibe. But the bad thing about these areas is that they become rather bland rather quickly. Part of the core gameplay requires a high amount of backtracking through areas that you visited before, so these locations will start to get really old really fast. Especially when you reach the underground facility. It has two floors that look practically identical in layout and appearance. If it wasn't for the game's map feature, I would have been lost. And even with the map feature, I found myself turned around multiple times. Now, like I mentioned before, I loved going into a new area and really taking it in by exploring every detail that I possibly could. Though the second time I returned to an area, that allure and curiosity vanished almost immediately. I would go so far as to say the descriptions of the things that you examine in these environments adds more to the presentation than the visuals do sometimes. Now what adds and sometimes detracts from the overall presentation is the soundtrack. You spend a lot more time exploring areas when you first come across them, and the soundtrack does a pretty good job creating an ambience that immerses you in some of these areas and moments. At least the first few times you come into a new area. Some of the music on offer are just a few chords or strums of a guitar, or just a short loop of music with no real personality. It's almost too ambient. Veterans of the first Parasite Eve will catch some of the music from the first game making a return, though. The game's main musical themes are in place in key moments, and they're remixed well enough. The track, Out of Phase, that plays in the police station of the first Parasite Eve is redone for the Mist headquarters and other areas that act as a safe place, for instance. It's actually the music that's playing in the background right now. It is a great callback to the original game, and it helps keep this game connected to it in a meaningful way. The soundtrack does go off on its own as the game progresses, leaving behind its predecessor, which is fine in its own right. It has a way of making you feel connected with the original, and is still used to create its own identity, though the new identity it's trying to create is kind of a rather bland one. When I was younger, I really liked the soundtrack as a whole. Though now that I'm listening to it with a much older set of years, some of the shortfalls started to shine through for me. To compare it to the original Parasite Eve, there isn't one specific piece of the soundtrack that defines the game or the overall experience. The music that plays during battle, for instance, doesn't do a good job of getting me excited or engaged in battle. The soundtrack really, as a whole, is just here, existing. No more, no less. 
As Aya herself so elegantly quotes in the game, the soundtrack is a vague existence that is betwixt and between, neither here nor there. Exploring the areas that you're in and watching the story unfold will be a pretty decent part of the experience. While there are certain set pieces that will happen every time, a good chunk of the story can be missed completely if you don't do certain things at exactly the right times. These can be little things to enrich the story, or you can miss huge story arcs altogether. Here's a few spoiler-free examples. If you want more background into Aya's move into the FBI and the Mist unit itself, you can examine the items on the wall at Mist HQ. You'll learn about the purpose of Mist and how it was that Aya became a part of the team. You'll even learn a little info about your teammates that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. I mentioned earlier, but after you save Rupert from number 9 in the Acropolis Tower, you need to make sure to find and enter a side door instead of pursuing Rupert's attacker in order to get a story cutscene that you'll miss otherwise. Not only that, you'll miss a very helpful key item too. Here's one that kind of grinds my gears a bit, especially being such a big fan of the series as a whole. In Dryfield, if you examine a specific mirror over a sink in one of the bathrooms in the motel, Aya will start to talk about how it is that she still looks so young and speaks to the mitochondria in her body. Sure, it wasn't really needed for the story, but it was a great touch. So on one hand, I like that things like this are hidden in plain sight, things that serve as a reward for those that want to look under the haystacks for a needle or two, but on the other hand, I shouldn't have to examine a random sink just to get more story that I wouldn't have otherwise. I don't know, overall I'm pretty torn on the idea in general. Other than examining the background for added flavor, the story progresses in two other ways. First, we have the scripted segments that are sometimes accompanied with CGI cutscenes. These look great, they don't overstay their welcome, and they help build the world around Aya and the player. The second way the story progresses is through phone conversations that you have with some of Aya's support crew when you go to save your game. Now, these conversations aren't generally needed to be had in order to advance the story proper. However, to get the best ending, you do need to make a phone call at a very specific point in the story. I did enjoy these phone conversations, though. They do a decent job of character building when it comes to Aya's team. Problem here is that that's about all the character development you're going to get from most of the game's characters. The game does a decent job of setting the stage for everyone you encounter, but there are just too many people to keep track of this time around. And because of this, no one person really gets enough attention to be afforded any true character development. Now as you're moving through the game, you're going to find yourself fighting many different types of monsters and enemies. There is one type of enemy that can really stop Aya in her tracks, though. It's an enemy so powerful that it can ruin the steady pacing of the game itself and slow it down to an arduous crawl. And that enemy is the game's many out-of-place puzzles. Now look, I love puzzles and games, but there are certain rules that need to be adhered to in my opinion. I actually laid out these rules in our Dino Crisis episode, and I'm considering calling these rules law at this point. Now first, a puzzle needs to make sense with regards to either the story or fit logically in the immediate environment. 
Second, a puzzle should not be so hard that you consider quitting the game over it. Third, you should feel a sense of genuine accomplishment when you do figure out the puzzle. So at one point in the middle of this game, you need to open up a cash register that has a key within it by punching the right numbers in order on the keypad. In order to figure out what numbers you need to punch in, you're going to have to do some legwork. You start off by walking around the Dryfield Motel, and you need to find a photograph of Wyatt Earp. You have to figure out his age, and then you have to figure out when the events of Tombstone took place. Then you have to do some math or something with those numbers. Now, to me at least, the way you solved this puzzle was not at all obvious, even with the clues that I found. This segment brought the game to a grinding halt for me. I don't remember how I solved this puzzle back when I was a kid, but when I replayed this game, I went right to the internet to get an answer. I did not have the patience to figure this one out. And unfortunately, that went with most of the other puzzles in this game. Later on down the road, you come across these colored tiles on top of this pyramid-type structure. You have to step on the tiles in a certain order, but what order? While there are clues scattered around the area, this puzzle required a ton of backtracking. Oh, and worst of all, was the slider puzzle. No game on this planet should have a slider puzzle. And yeah, I'm looking at you, Resident Evil 4. Ah, fuck, can you imagine that slider puzzle coming back in the Resident Evil 4 remake? Ugh, the thought just makes me shiver. But sure, you can find a solution to a slider puzzle eventually, but I hate these type of puzzles with a blistering passion. They just take up so much time and destroy the game's pacing. When I started playing this game again for this episode, I quite literally cringed when I thought about this one puzzle. Just, just awful. So as we wind it down, I did want to touch on some of the game's unlockable content. Parasite Eve 2 put its hooks in me pretty quick when I was a kid, and it was the replayability aspect of this game that continues to make me come back to it. When you finish the game, you'll unlock Replay Mode. You can play the game through again carrying over a small percentage of your accumulated experience points and bounty points. Also, depending on how much experience you've accumulated, you'll unlock the ability to buy new weapons and items at the start of the game. If you can achieve the highest rank possible, you'll be able to unlock a pretty awesome weapon. Many of you may already know this, but for you eagle-eyed Final Fantasy VIII fans, you'll have noticed that the weapon that number 9 carries, the big hulking man, is a modified version of the gun blade that Squall wields. Getting to use this weapon was an absolute blast. Just like in Final Fantasy VIII, you can swing the blade and right before it connects, you can press the trigger for some massive damage. It's a fantastic reward for completing the game and getting the best ranking. The more you play replay mode and complete it, the more things that you can unlock. But do you want a harder challenge? You should try bounty mode. Enemies are tougher, but the rewards are bigger. How about scavenger mode? This mode has less weapons available to you and items are scarce. And for the ultimate challenge, there's Nightmare Mode. This combines the hard enemies of Bounty Mode, the item scarcity of Scavenger Mode, and then cranks the difficulty dial up to 11. I have not personally attempted this mode, nor do I plan to. 
Getting stomped into the ground repeatedly does not sound like a good time to me, but maybe I'll get the motivation to give it a try one of these days. However, I would not count on it. So when you wrap it all up, Parasite Eve 2 is a fun game at its core, and one I think most people will enjoy if they give it a chance. While I'll be the first to admit that my nostalgia for this game is strong and I am a bit biased in some areas, there is a solid game to be had here. What it does well, it does well. Where it falters, though, it falters more noticeably as I've grown older. On one hand, the visual presentation is solid throughout. Though some of the later game areas can look a little bland, the CGI cutscenes, character, and enemy models look great, even by today's standards. Combat at its core is fun and satisfying. I loved playing the role of a bounty hunter hunting down creatures to load up on bounty points and loot. The story had the makings of something decent here. In the interest of keeping this particular conversation free of spoilers, I didn't really want to dive into them, but the story is pretty engaging, at least for a little while. Finally, there's plenty of reasons to play this game through multiple times, given the game's many bonus modes and unlockables. But on the other hand, this game's clunky controls really knock it down a few notches. While I personally love tank-style controls, they really are out of place in this game, and they have not aged well for most people. And while Aya has a very large supporting cast this time around, I consider them and their involvement in this story lackluster at best. There is very little character development, and what little there was does not get expanded on, which is a big bummer. And then going back to the story, while it was great to start with, it really fell flat for me in the end. Even though some of the more in-depth story elements start to become a little cliché, Parasite Eve just couldn't quite stick the landing when the credits began to roll. I was vested in the story until just before the final act, then it lost me. So thinking of it that way, you'd think the gameplay would actually kind of make up for it, but the backtracking was something that I still struggled with too. While some backtracking can be expected, there is way too much of it in this game, and it really breaks up the pacing in a bad way. And then finally, the amount of complicated puzzles present are very immersion-breaking and kill the game's pacing worse than the backtracking. I think I would rather eat glass than have to figure out these puzzles out on my own again, if that gives you any idea how I feel on this topic. So, do I recommend Parasite Eve 2? Yes and no. If you can get over all of my aforementioned dislikes, there is a solid experience to be had here. I genuinely have fun anytime I play this game, and I think most gamers should experience this one if they haven't already. I also can't deny that I love the Parasite Eve universe, and Ayabrea will be, forever, one of my favorite video game characters of all time. However, I don't think this game has aged particularly well, and its many shortfalls really do hold it back from its full potential. But I still treasure this game, though. It's one that I've played many times growing up, and it will always have a special place in my memories.
And that will do it for us today, my friends. This has been episode 31 of the Retro Wildlands, Parasite Eve 2 for the Sony PlayStation. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to the show today. I really appreciate having you here with us on our Wildlands expedition. This game and the original were a big reason I decided to ultimately launch this podcast project of mine. I've been hooked on the series as a whole since I was a kid, and while the sequel has its flaws, it will always be a game that I will hold close to my heart, and one that will bring me some solid, good, nostalgic vibes, no matter what. Eventually on the podcast, I would like to cover the third and final game in the Parasite E franchise, the game known as The Third Birthday. It was a PlayStation Portable exclusive, and it completely changed up the gameplay and story experience. It's a game that I am very excited to talk about one day for a myriad of reasons. While I have a love-hate relationship with Parasite Eve 2, my relationship with The Third Birthday can probably be best described as passionate volatility. And I think I'll leave it at that for now, so stay tuned, my friends. Definitely more to come. If you like the show this week and want to show it and myself some support, please take a moment and leave a good review on your preferred podcasting platform if you can. Good reviews should help circulate the podcast, and it should help it find more people. Another great way to help the show would be to spread the word about the Retro Wildlands to your friends, your family, and anybody else you think might like the show. Here's a suggestion. Next time you're in an airport terminal waiting on your flight, and that one random person wants to talk to you about your travel plans or show you pictures of their family and you just do not care about any of it, deflect all of that by talking about the Retro Wildlands podcast. You'll either get to talk about video games with that person, or that person will get so bored out of their minds, they'll leave you alone. So, it's a win-win, I'd say. And while we're at it, make sure you follow or subscribe to the show on your podcasting platform as well. This way you'll get notified right away when I drop new episodes. While I try to drop a new show every Thursday, I have been known to post a show later in the day or a few days after Thursday if things are not going the way that I want them to or things like my adult job get in the way. Following or subscribing will make sure that you're always on top of new content. So, what's coming up next time? I really enjoyed putting together my top 10 favorite weapons and gadgets from GoldenEye 007 episode a couple weeks back, and I've been thinking of what the next sort of episode like that is going to be. And now, I think I finally got it. My top 10 favorite boss themes. For me, the one thing that seems to always trigger a nostalgic memory is music or some type of melody. The music that plays during a boss battle can be some of the most memorable, and I want to rank my personal favorites. I already have kind of half of a mental list complete, but I think it's time I actually sat down, lay these tracks out in my mind, and finally declare which of these are the best of the best. If you want to let me know what your favorite boss themes are, feel free to reach out to us on social media. Just a quick reminder, you can find the Retro Wildlands over on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. All you need to do is search at Retro Wildlands and you should find us. Drop us a follow so you can keep tabs on what it is that I'm up to and what's going on with the show. Plus, feel free to comment and interact with any of our posts. 
I'll be posting something about the boss theme episode down the road, so you can use that as a sounding board to let me know what your favorites are. And as an added bonus, if you follow the show on social media, I'll try to follow you back. It sounds kind of dumb, but I do get a dumb smile on my face anytime I see our subscriber or follower count tick up, even if it's just ticking up by one. I really appreciate you giving this train wreck of a project of mine a chance. Seriously, if you are still listening to this show right now, you are awesome. Yes, I'm pointing my finger at you through your car speaker. Just know that I'll be back again soon on another episode, and I really hope that you decide to tag along. Everyone is welcome to join us on our Wildlands expedition. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. (laughs) 